Thank you, Ralph. Um, good morning. So today we are in our second week of the Big Questions series. And um, last week we tackled, why does God allow evil and suffering? And so uh, we discussed that. We looked at Romans chapter 1. And today we will be in John chapter 14 as we look at the question, aren't there many ways to heaven? Aren't there many ways to heaven? This is a, a very popular concept in the world today. Uh, the implication behind that question is, is that there, no one religion is the sole arbiter of truth. That no one religion has it all figured out. There are pieces and parts to all world religions that speak to truth. And so then the question becomes when a Christian says that there is only one way to God, and that is through Jesus Christ, his son, uh, the world will look at Christians and say that's narrow-minded, that's intolerant. They will even argue that that's bigoted, that you are obviously placing yourself above other religious beliefs. And did you know that there are over 4,000 world religions? Did you know that? There are over 4,000 world religions in the world today. And in fact, in God's providence, even before I had established this series, even before I knew that I would be preaching this question today, aren't there many ways to heaven, where we will look at different world religious views, today is World Religion Day. Did you all know that? Today is World Religion Day, where they come together to celebrate what they do have in common. And so it's appropriate that today we're actually going to delve into that question. So while there are many, many world religions, uh, albeit the vast majority of them are one adherent, one person religions. Uh, perhaps you're one of those. But there are four major world religions besides Christianity. You'll know them when I mention them. Christianity is the largest. Uh, it uh, has over 2.4 billion followers around the world. 2.4 billion people are followers and I identify themselves as Christian. The second largest world religion is Islam, which touts 1.6 billion followers. Hinduism is third. And Hinduism is an Eastern religion, one of the older religions in the world, and there are about 1.1 billion followers of Hinduism. And then Buddhism, which is kind of an offshoot from Hinduism, uh, has about 506 million followers today. And then Judaism. Judaism, uh, the Jewish people, uh, they are uh, a small uh, sect, but of course we are closely connected to them because they share the Old Testament with us. There's 14.3 million Jewish people. Uh, it is one of the oldest monotheistic faiths. And we'll find out here in a moment some of the commonalities, and then we will talk about today the uniqueness of Christianity and the uniqueness of Jesus. And so let's look at each one of these faiths. Hinduism 
is mostly regional. It's in India and surrounding countries. It is extremely polytheistic. That is, that there are many gods, many gods. Um, in fact, <laughs> there are, at, at current count, over 330 million Hindu gods. 330 million and counting every day. The faith is uh, very impersonal. There is no way to know God. And it is very much works-based. It's based on human effort. And people are trapped in a reincarnation cycle. The incarnations of, of human beings, uh, which is known as avatars. You're, you're an avatar. You're going through life. And Hinduism uh, really brings up this concept of karma. Many of us have heard that word, karma. Uh, and essentially, it's very closely tied to you reap what you sow. And so karma is really what de determines what you become reincarnated into in the next life. If you begin as a human, then if you do bad things and they outweigh the good in this life, then you may become an animal or even an insect, and then the next life you become better. So it's a continuous entrapment into a reincarnation cycle. Buddhism is essentially an offshoot from Hinduism, and of course it began in about 500 BC under a man who called himself Buddha. And it's largely atheistic, it doesn't really identify or seek any god, it's impersonal in that sense. It's very human-centered. It's very much about the human condition. And what Buddha was struggling with was this idea of suffering. Why do we suffer physical and emotional pain? And so Buddhism really is a seeking after removing yourself from all suffering. That's what it's really all about. The, the whole goal of Buddhism, the whole aim, the entire purpose for which you are a Buddhist is to finally deliver yourself from all suffering. And so therefore, if you can deliver yourself from all suffering, what Buddhism teaches is that you have to then get rid of all pleasure. You get rid of all desire. But the idea behind trying to set a goal to get rid of all desire is, in fact, a desire itself. It's self-defeating. But if you are able to deliver yourself from it, you achieve what's called nirvana. Nirvana. So that's Hinduism and Buddhism. Those are the Eastern religions. Let's walk over to the Middle East, where Islam is the largest monotheistic faith besides Christianity. The god of Islam is Allah, and he is unknowable. He is transcendent. The, the faith is extremely works-based. There are so many rules that you must follow in order to find favor with Allah. It is aggressive in keeping and gaining new followers. And when you die, you really don't know up until the day that you die if you are going into either paradise or hell. It is randomly decided and subjectively determined by Allah. That's the second largest faith. It's interesting that Islam is a very 
protracted movement of a faith. They really do go out and try to convert people to that faith. And then Judaism. Judaism is a monotheistic faith, and uh, the, the Shema, taken from Deuteronomy 6.4, actually determines how they view God as one. God is one. And uh, Judy read earlier in Isaiah 45 um, that God is one. I alone am God, and there is no other. However, it is very works-based. It is about what you do. If you know anything about Judaism in Jesus' day, his biggest issue was with Pharisees who constantly wanted people to keep the letter of the law. And so they are still awaiting a Messiah, or as they would call it, a Messianic age to come. And when that day comes, there will be a physical resurrection of every single human being, and they will either be uh, determined to be righteous by God, Jehovah, or they will be condemned to everlasting punishment. So those are the four major world religions besides Christianity. And this morning, we're going to learn what the Bible has to say. And we're going to talk about the uniqueness of Christianity and the uniqueness of Jesus. And so turn in your Bibles to John chapter 14. And if you are there, we're going to look at verses 1 through 6. And if you are able and can stand, please stand with us for the reading of God's Word. Do not let your hearts be troubled. Trust in God. Trust also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you. I am going there to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me, that you also may be where I am. You know the way to the place where I am going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we don't know where you are going, so how can we know the way? Jesus answered, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Father, this is your word. Jesus uh, spoke these words in the upper room to his disciples on the night before he was betrayed and crucified. Lord, we ask that you will illumine our hearts and our minds to the uniqueness of Christianity and Jesus. In Jesus' name we do pray. Amen. Amen. So let's look at the uniqueness of Christianity. First of all, we find in this passage, Jesus says, Do not let your hearts be troubled. Trust in God. Trust also in me. And then later, Jesus identifies himself as one with God, that he is God in the flesh. And so therefore, he is a personal God. God has made himself available to all of humankind. Christianity is not a religion. Christianity is not a religion. It is a relationship with God through his son, Jesus Christ. In addition to that, Christianity is not about humankind trying to work our way into heaven. Instead, Christianity 
is God coming down from heaven to do for humankind what we cannot do for ourselves. This is the good news, that God realized that there was no way we could make our way acceptable to him, and so he himself took on our sin on the cross, and he paid the price for us. Secondly, God is not just personal, but he is knowable, that we can know God. Christianity answers every single major question that humanity has ever asked. First of all, is there a God? Is there a God, some transcendent force, some supernatural being? Christianity, of course, answers that in the very first line of the Bible. In Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, it says, In the beginning, God. It doesn't even equivocate on whether or not he exists. It's a known fact. When you read the word, it says, In the beginning, God. The author of Genesis is Moses, and Moses, of course, was inspired by the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, and therefore he wrote that word as a declaration that there is no reason for us to even question the existence of God. In the Psalms, the psalmist would write, the fool says in his heart, there is no God, because God has made himself knowable. But beyond the question of, is there a God?, then we have to ask this question, when and how did the world begin? When did it begin? Up until just recently, the science community would say that there was no beginning to the, end, uh, to the universe, it has always been. But recently, recent discoveries have shown that yes, in the last hundred years we've determined that there was in fact a beginning, a beginning to the universe. So then we have to ask the question, how did the universe begin? And then you could say, well, it all just kind of peeled back little by little by little because the universe is expanding. But you've got to get back to some matter, some space, some time that's so infinitesimally small that you've got to ask yourself the question, where did that come from? God is the only legitimate answer to that question. But then there's a third question. What is the meaning of life? And where did I come from? Where did you come from? What is the meaning of life? Why are you here? The average person lives 70 plus years, but why? What is the purpose behind it all? Why are we here? Another question that Christianity answers is, what is truth and what is morality? How do we determine who is right and who is wrong in a given circumstance? And then, of course, the question that is on everyone's heart. Where do I go when I die? What happens at the end of my days? Where do I go? Those are the questions that have been asked by humans since time began. Christianity uniquely answers them all. Thirdly, there's the Trinity. The Trinity is unique to any world faith. It's one in essence. God is one in essence. This is why Jesus said, I and the Father are one. I and the Father. You, if you've seen the Father, you have seen me. This was hard for the disciples to wrap their mind around. 
But it's true. He is one with the Father. The Holy Spirit is one with the Father. The Father is one with the Holy Spirit and with Christ. The Trinity is powerful because now we know that God, who was in perfect fellowship with himself, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, he did not have to create humans. He didn't have to create us. He was in perfect fellowship and peace with himself. He chose to create. He chose to create. There is unity and diversity in the community of the Trinity. And that is a powerful truth for us today. And then lastly, Christianity offers forgiveness. Dwight Moody said, the voice of sin is loud, but the voice of forgiveness is louder. You know, I was talking about the World Religion Day and they had a World Religion Conference many, many, many years ago. And what they had assigned every single representative from every major world religion was when they would gather in this room, they would stand up one at a time and tell the rest of the room, represented by all these different world religions, what is unique about their religion. What's unique? What sets it apart? And when it came time for the Christian representative to speak, most people would have said it's Jesus Christ, who is the founder and perfecter of our faith. But instead, in his wisdom and by God's direction, he said, forgiveness. And one by one, all of the other representatives around the room agreed, Christianity is the only world faith that offers forgiveness and reconciliation for sin that separates from God. You see, the Bible says that if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just. He is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. So Christianity is unique because God is personal. God is knowable. God is triune. And God is a forgiving God. But then we have to come to the person of Jesus Christ as we see in this passage, the uniqueness of Jesus it's very clear he is fully human and fully God. Well, let's look at his humanity. First of all, Jesus was born of a woman. He was born of a woman. Both Matthew and Luke detail the birth account of Jesus Christ. He was born of a woman named Mary. But it was unique. It was unique in this way, that he was born of a virgin. He was born by the Holy Spirit. This makes him utterly unique. No one else has ever been born by any other means than the seed of man. And yet, Mary had a child named Jesus. He was human. He was born as a human. Secondly, Jesus had human attributes. He had a physical body. He had emotions. He used all of his senses. He was limited by space and by time. He experienced hunger and thirst and exhaustion. He experienced joy and temptation and sorrow and pain, anguish and even death. He cried. 
He wept when Jesus, when Lazarus died. He anguished in the Garden of Gethsemane the night before he would die on a cross, on a cruel Roman cross. He anguished in the Garden of Gethsemane. He thirsted as he hung on that cross. He thirsted. He was fully human. But as fully human as he was, he was unique. Just like his birth was unique, his humanity was unique because he never sinned. He never sinned. Jesus Christ never sinned. The gospel, you know, the, the writer Paul would say these words in Corinthians, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us. For in him we might become the righteousness of God. In Hebrews, the author there says this, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet he did not sin. Jesus was fully human because of his birth, but he was also fully human because of his attributes as a human. But then thirdly, Jesus experienced physical death. The entire New Testament ascribes to the fact that Jesus died by crucifixion under the Romans. That Jesus died a horrible, painful, excruciating death is historically proven. And the fact that Jesus died makes him like all of us. He died. All of us are marching on to the day of our death. No one has ever escaped it. Yes, there are two in the scriptures that we know. We can look back to Enoch in Genesis, and we can also look at Elijah, who was taken up into a whirlwind. But most scholars would see that those two men and the work that they have to do for God is still yet future. We find two witnesses in Revelation chapter 11, and many believe that those two witnesses are none other than Enoch and Elijah, and that they will, in fact, die at the hands of evil men under Antichrist. But Jesus died. In the Bible, it tells us that physical death comes to all of us. In Hebrews it says, just as man is destined to die once and after the judgment, so Christ died once. Jesus was fully human. That is unique. He was fully human, but he was without sin. He was born of a virgin, and he did not stay in the grave. Muhammad is in the grave. Buddha is in the grave. But Jesus is no longer in the grave. He is sitting at the right hand of the Almighty Father and he is making intercession for you and for me at this very moment. He is a living Lord. But not only is he fully human, he is fully divine. And there are four things I want us to cover here. First of all, he possessed the attributes of God. Jesus possessed the attributes of God. In Colossians chapter 2, it says this, In Christ, all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form. In Philippians, Paul would say, Christ, being in the very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but he made himself nothing. What he's saying there is that Christ humbly 
removed every divine privilege that he had in order that he might most identify with us. He didn't consider equality with God something to be grasped, but he emptied himself. He let it go so that he could live among humans. In Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3, the author tells us that Jesus is the exact representation of the being of God. That Jesus is God. Not only that, you can look at his miracles. You can look at his healings. You can look at the divine knowledge that Jesus displayed in his earthly ministry. Over and over and over again, people were marveling at the authority of Jesus Christ. His authority was something to behold. He had that kind of divine authority. He worked miracles and healings. You know, God called Jesus his son at his baptism and enabled him to calm the storm, to walk on water, to multiply food, to give sight to the blind, to help the lame walk, and he raised the dead. This is not some ordinary human being. Jesus Christ did these miracles in full view of those who would later testify as eyewitnesses. We find the record of it in the Gospels and further beyond. Not only that, but Jesus was omniscient. Many times when he healed the paralytic, the first thing he did was he said, your sins are forgiven. And then when he was rebuked by the Pharisees for that, we'll talk about the forgiveness of sins in a moment, but when he was rebuked, it's interesting that the, the Pharisees were like, who are you to forgive sins? Only God can do that. And it says later in that passage that Jesus knew what they were thinking. He was omniscient. He understood that. Many times throughout his earthly ministry, he knew what people were thinking. How about the rich young ruler who came to him and said, Lord, how do I make my way to heaven? And Jesus said, list out some of the commandments. He said, I've kept them all. He said, good, go and sell everything you have and give it to the poor and then follow me. The rich young ruler went away sad. Why? Because Jesus knew what really was his linchpin of faith. It was based on his wealth. And Jesus said, give up that thing which you think you cannot lose in order to gain what you cannot gain. And Jesus said that to that rich young ruler and he knew how he was thinking. So he not only possessed human attributes and godly attributes, but he also forgave sins. As I said, Jesus forgave that paralytic. He said, son, your sins are forgiven. And the religious leaders said, why does this fellow talk like this? He's blaspheming. He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Jesus also forgave the sinful woman who anointed him with perfume and used it as an object lesson to talk about those who are most sinful are most grateful for the mercy and the love of God. Peter stood up on the day of Pentecost and he declared, repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins. His death on the cross made it possible for every single human being to come to him and be forgiven. Peter would declare, there is no other name given among men by which we must be saved than Jesus Christ. So he forgave sins. But thirdly, he accepted worship. Now you and I know you only worship God. So why would Jesus accept worship? Do you realize it began at his birth? The wise men who came from the east came to worship 
him. They brought gifts. They bowed down before the manger and they worshipped him. After he walked on water, his disciples worshipped him, saying, truly, you are the Son of God. And then Jesus accepted worship from the man whose sight he restored. You see, Jesus was one who accepted worship. Prior to his great commission, he met them out on the Mount of Olives, and his disciples worshipped him, it says, before he was taken up into glory. Jesus never refused worship. Who does that except the person who truly is God? Peter refused worship. Somebody tried to worship Peter because he performed a miracle, and Peter said, don't do it. When John the Revelator was writing Revelation and the angel showed him the marriage of the, of the Lamb, the, the wedding supper of the Lamb, John wanted to bow down and worship the angel and the angel said, don't do it. Don't do it. Worship God. Worship only God. He told his disciples, I and the Father are one. Jesus is, in fact, one with God. God. And this comes to our fourth reason why Jesus is unique. He's unique in many ways in, his, in the way in which he loves God and he represents God to us because he claimed to be God. He confirmed to the Samaritan woman at the well, I who speak to you am he, the Messiah. I am the, the Messiah. I am the anointed one of God. John recorded that Jesus was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. He told his disciples, I and the father are one. And in response, the religious leaders actually picked up stones to stone him. They wanted to stone him for blasphemy. And in Romans 9, Paul states, from the patriarchs are traced the human ancestry of Christ who is God over all. We could go on and on, but Jesus' claim to deity was clear. He made no equivocation about it. We find that Jesus Christ said some things about himself that many would believe, as C.S. Lewis famously put it, he's either a liar because he said these things about himself and they were not true, or he is a lunatic because he said these things about himself, believing them to be true even though they were not. Or he is, in fact, Lord. He is, in fact, who he said he was. Jesus Christ did not give humanity a choice to sit on the sideline of life. Jesus did not give humanity an opportunity to sit on the fence, straddled between two opinions. Jesus Christ de demands our full devotion to him. And it's what will make your life the fullest it's ever been. My question for us all this morning, as we looked at the uniqueness of Christianity, how God is a personal God, God is knowable. Over and over and over again in scripture, God has made himself clear to humanity. That God is triune. He is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Ways in which we can relate to this knowable God. He is a forgiving and a reconciling God. A God of grace and mercy and love and truth. All of us have 
access to this God through Jesus Christ. So what makes him unique? He's 100% human, and he is 100% God. But now we have to ask ourselves the question that most of us ask. Well, wait a minute. What about those who've never heard the name of Jesus Christ? What about that poor person living in the middle of some country or some area that's never heard the gospel of Jesus Christ? Well, let me try to take a, a stab at answering that question because it's one that's on many people's hearts. What will happen to them? Well, let's go before Christ, before the uh, time of his incarnation on this earth. You can see generations and generations of people for thousands of years were alive before Jesus came on the scene. We learn from Abraham in Romans chapter 4 that Abraham believed God and God credited to him as righteousness. He accounted righteous Abraham because of his faith. Abraham placed faith in God. Now, how do you place your faith in God if you don't know him? Like I just said, God makes himself known. How? Well, last week we talked in Romans chapter 1 that God's invisible attributes, his divine power, his glory have been made clear, clear to all of humanity. Just look at creation around you. You know that there is an intelligent designer. You know that there is a super creator, a fine tuner of this universe. Nothing happens outside of the command of this great, powerful being that we call God. And so he has made himself known through creation. But he also makes himself known in the quiet of your own searching heart. Because it says in Romans chapter 2 that the heart... The heart has a conscience. You have a conscience. There is a sense of right and wrong. All of us have this moral code, as C.S. Lewis puts it. We have a moral code written on our hearts. We know what is right and wrong. Where does that sense of right and wrong come from? If not from some great arbiter of absolute truth of what is right and what is just and what is fair. This has come to all of us. In Romans chapter 2, it's, it's like our consciences bear witness. They bear witness to us of what is right. It says that the Gentiles do what the law requires, even though they didn't have the law. Abraham was this person who believed God because God gave him a special revelation, but Abraham still had to place his faith in him. Look at Naaman. Naaman declared, now I know that there is no God in all the world except in Israel. So please accept a gift from my servant. You know the story of Naaman. How Elisha had told him he had leprosy. He was a very uh, powerful man. And he had leprosy. And Elisha told him, go and wash in the Jordan. Dip seven times in the river Jordan. This seemed like a preposterous solution for Naaman. He, de he denied doing it. He didn't want to go. And then finally his servant said, listen, let the man talk and tell you where to go. If he'd asked you to do something great with your life, you would have done it. But all he's doing is to come simply, humbly, by yourself. Oh, isn't that the gospel? Just come as you are. Dude, you don't have to have it all figured out. 
You don't have to know it all. God will reveal himself little by little by little until you come to this faith that just is so unshakable. I'm convinced that our world is full of lukewarm Christians who haven't really understood the depths and the riches of the word of God as revealed to us in the word here in our Bibles. If we come to that place, then God will reveal little by little. Every little piece of the puzzle will start to click together. And you and I will grow in our knowledge and our awe of Almighty God. You see, that's what Naaman did. He did the very simple thing. He took a step. He said, fine, I'll play your little game, Elisha. I'll humor you. I'll go down and I'll dip in the river for seven times. And then he was healed. He was healed. And it was after he was healed that he then comes to Elisha, bows down before him and says, now I know. Now I know that the God of Israel is the only God. There is no other. He is the one who heals. He is the one who forgives. You and I could go through Hebrews 11, the hall of faith, the faith chapter, and all of those who have come before Christ who place their faith in God. We know that they are in heaven because of the faith that they displayed. Hebrews tells us that there is a country that they don't even know about, but they will go to it. But then how do we deal with the question of those who didn't receive a special revelation. They may have gotten the general revelation of uh, creation, but what about the special revelation that they did not have? Well, the Bible answers that too. In Deuteronomy 4.29, it says this, but if from there you seek the Lord your God, you will find him if you look for him with all of your heart and with all of your soul. If you seek him, you will be found by him. Many of us love to quote Jeremiah 29, 11. 29 and 13 says this, you will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. You see, Proverbs 8, 14 says, I love, the, this is God speaking, I love those who love me and those who seek me will find me. Romans 2.15, it says that the requirements of the law are written on their hearts. And think about after Jesus came, think about the time of uh, Peter and his evangelism of Cornelius. It says in the uh, Acts chapter 10 that Cornelius was a man whose family, he and his family were devout and God-fearing. Where did they get this idea of being devout to a God and being God-fearing? He gave generously, it says, to those in need, and he prayed to God regularly. You see, he was seeking God. Here's what I believe. Every single person from the beginning of time until now and going into the future until Jesus comes and makes all things new, Every single person who earnestly seeks after God, they have a dedicated searching for this deity. God will make himself known. You know, Cornelius says this, I have now found the one that I have always worshipped. This is why the great commission of Jesus Christ 
is absolutely essential. All of us must worship God and we must go and tell. Because when we go and tell, there are those who will then hear about this Jesus. They will learn about how they can be reconciled to the Father, how they can be forgiven of their sins, how they can experience the depth of the love of God for the rest of their life and into life eternal. You see, God has made himself known, and Christianity is the most unique, I won't even call it a religion, it is a relationship. Where are you in your relationship with God today? Think back. It's a new year. A year from now, where will you be in your relationship with God? Will you make progress? Will you get to know him in a more intimate, personal way? He wants you to. He wants to know you so well, because he wants you to come to him with every single prayer request, no matter how small, no matter how large. Whatever you're going through, God wants you to lay it at his feet. Isn't he the one you want to go to? He knows the end from the beginning. He knows everything about you. He knows the number of hairs on your head. God loves you. God loves me. You know, one of my favorite songs besides Nothing But the Blood. Amen? Nothing But the Blood. One of my favorite songs is Jesus Loves Me. This I know. For the Bible tells me so. Little ones to him belong. They are weak, but he is strong. Sing it with me. Yes, Jesus loves me. Yes, Jesus loves me. Yes, Jesus loves me. The Bible tells me so. Good Lord and prayer. Father, we love you. We're grateful for your love for us. We know that no matter where we are in life, you are there with us. You are ever-present. Your mercies are new every morning. Your faithfulness is great. Your kindness is more than we can fathom. Thank you that you loved us enough, that you gave your one and only Son, that whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. Father, there are many in this room this morning who are Christians. They have, they have claimed Christianity most of their lives, but they want to take that next step into a more intimate, a deeper relationship with you. Lord, I pray that today they, they really make that commitment right to you, just between you and them. Lord, if anybody's here who has never accepted Jesus, who's never received the free gift of eternal life through him. I pray that today you will move on their heart to just come forward as we sing this song and meet me at the front and I'll talk to them about what it means to be a Christian. Lord, if there's anybody in this room who's been visiting with us and wants to come and join this fellowship of faith called Ashley River, I pray that you'll move on their hearts this morning and they respond as we sing this song. Thank you, Father, for your love for us. 
Thank you for your mercy. And now as we sing this hymn of commitment beneath the cross of Jesus, let us stand and sing. Amen.